was the Breaking Bad season finale as great as you had hoped it to be? And was that you live tweeting it? Yeah, yeah, I was. I, I like doing that simply because I feel part of a greater community. Now, as for the ending of the show, I quite liked it. No spoilers. No, 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 no. You convinced Wifey and me to actually sit down and watch season one, episode one. So that's coming up. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, you got a long way to go. I liked it. <laughs> My wife didn't like it so much. She thought it was a bit of uh, a cheat, but she seems to be in the minority. And again, my wife is a novelist, so she's going to look at things a little bit differently. See, now I prefer to reserve judgment on things like this or a movie, by example, until I've had a day or two to process it. Because if you ask me walking out of a film, hey, so what'd you think of the movie? I'll tell you it was fantastic. And it won't be for a few hours before I've actually come to a more solid conclusion. Well, this is pretty much where we are with, uh, with, with my wifey. Yeah, pretty much. The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. Yes, um, and my employer, who is me, allowed me to go to San Francisco this uh, past week where I've sat down with the people from RDO in the Mission District of, uh, of the city. And uh, the embargo on what we talked about, I mean, you and I will talk about it offline. We can't talk about it on this podcast because the podcast will be posted before the embargo is lifted. But we will talk about it. I, I, I can't offer some stuff. Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, simulcast on shortwave radio and Citizens Band 14, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Turning your car into a four-wheeled cell phone, why streaming music services are taking a back seat while Canada's largest wireless company takes the wheel. The stunt that got Elvis Costello banned from Saturday Night Live. We'll introduce you to Open Culture's Mike Springer to find out what it took to get back into Lorne Michaels' good books. Synesthesia, what letters and numbers look like to one listener. We'll even try to win the lottery thanks to this rather unique superpower. And a G&B update on our Boombox giveaway and why we're begging you to nominate us for an award. And finally, a brand new use for old compact discs and why the solution to sewage may actually lie with Limp Bizkit. Okay, what, what can you tell us about this top well, secret event uh, you went to? First of all, it was my first experience going to a tech company in, in San Francisco, and it was really cool. Um, it is in a non-RDO's headquarters, is in a nondescript part, of an industrial area of, uh, I don't know, about a 50-minute cab ride from, from downtown. The Mission District is a very unique part of San Francisco. It, it certainly is. And apparently, uh, Twitter and a whole bunch of other tech companies are in the same area, but it's very anonymous, very low-key. For example, if you go into the RDO building, which they share with a whole bunch of other people, is um, it, there's not even a sign. You just got to know the address. And uh, they're on the top floor, and they haven't even bothered finishing it because they're expanding so quickly. Lots of exposed concrete um, um, pillars and, and in unfinished floors and, and all that kind of stuff. And apparently they've got 130 people working there. That's This is their world headquarters. And they just keep on hiring and expanding, so they don't feel that there's any real need or any, any, any well, they just don't have to uh, finish the place because they're going to end up getting bigger. And I thought it was also rather interesting that there um, was a huge refrigerators full of uh, soda 
and lots and lots of sugary candies all over the place for everybody. Yeah, but that's standard fare for a uh, startup slash tech company in San Francisco these days, don't you think? Yeah, I, it is. Yeah. And it was just cool to see it. W was there a pool table and one of those little domed chairs that you can fall asleep in? When I was at the Google headquarters in Mountain View, California, they had all of that stuff. And the funny thing was, was there were caches of Nerf gun weaponry everywhere. And those little pods that people get to sleep in and the snacks and all that. Anybody using them? No. No, everybody was at their desk wearing headphones, coating something. I wonder if they're coating something for the car. I don't know. Beep, 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 yeah. Well, you know what they're doing. You just can't tell us. I know what they're doing. Okay, and I can tell you that it doesn't have to do with the car. Now, one of the things that we did talk to, I talked to, to Drew, who's the CEO, and Chris, who's in charge of uh, marketing. And I asked about the car. And we went through this really long story about uh, how companies like RDO are waiting for standards to be set by someone else. What they want to see in terms of smartphone integration and everything else integration with the dashboard is it to distill down to two things. It's either going to be iOS or Android. And once that's set it, uh, settled, they will develop for both those platforms. They don't want to go out there and create a Ford platform or a Volvo platform or a, 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 a Ferrari platform or whoever wants to put stuff into their dashboard, infotainment software into their dashboard. So they're going to hang back and wait and let the automotive industry sort this one out it's a huge mistake because ford and gm and chrysler or toyota or honda whomever you want to talk about they're not going to want to have their screen look exactly like the screen of their competition and if you are sitting back waiting for the industry uh, to get its collective act together they're all going to go their own independent ways well this is true except that we have seen companies already jump on board with ios uh Nissan will be the first launch partner for iOS in the car. And what that what form that takes, we don't know yet. Will it look like what's on, on your phone? Will it be somehow uh, white-labeled so that there's a certain amount of customization overlay on what you see? I mean, if it's Android, I mean, that's not a problem because carriers mess with Android all the time. iOS, different story. So we'll see. I don't know. I, I, I really don't know what's happening. I'll... Me, personally, what I would like to see, and I know this is a bit of a, a stretch, I would like to see whatever's on my phone screen, I would like to see that in the dashboard. And I don't, I don't care what operating system we're talking about, I just want to see that uh, replicated, mirrored. Now, that's okay. The, the issue, though, is with the interface it, itself. And what we've come to understand about touchscreens is they don't work very well in the car because you're supposed to be put, keeping your eyes on the road. And so that's why physical buttons are still very important in a dashboard, even though we've moved on to a virtual button world with our smartphones. So maybe what we just need to do is say, listen, put a knob here, label it select. Make it turnable. And when someone pushes the button or turns the knob, it will actually talk to the smartphone in a way that's consistent across all of the platforms. Because you're right, nobody wants to have to learn a whole new system every time they get into a different car. But you're going to want to ensure that that interface experience is the same. Right. I was in L.A. a couple of weeks ago, and I ended up Long story. I ended up in a brand new Cadillac. Was it a pink Cadillac? Well, 
and it was uh, equipped with Cadillac's Q system. And I got to tell you, I mean, I'm a gadget guy, and I had a hard time navigating through the Q system. I mean, when I figured out how it worked, it was it was okay, but it wasn't as intuitive. I mean, automobile manufacturers should not get into the business of creating user interfaces. They're just not very good at it. Which brings me to why Canada's biggest wireless company wants to uh, engage in the connected car revolution by uh, making your connected car uh, one giant smartphone on four wheels. I don't understand why we need to have a separate SIM card that we embed in our dashboard for roving Wi-Fi and cellular access when we've basically already got that with mobile hotspots on our smartphones. I agree. However, this will allow Rogers to count your car as yet another device. And dip into my wallet in the process? Yeah, probably. I don't see the value in it. Well, I I wouldn't use it. I mean, I've got my smartphone that if I can integrate it the way I want, I mean, that's fine. Um, But my car actually has a slot for a SIM card in the infotainment system. Does it really? It does. What do you have? I have uh, have a a German sports car. You're not going to tell me which German sports car you've got? No, I, 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 listen, I have enough self-esteem issues that I don't need to get people on my back about what kind of cars I have. <laughs> anyway, there is a SIM card in there. It is disabled. It does not work. And um, well, I asked, well, why is that? He says, well, because in Europe they were planning to make cars rolling Wi-Fi hotspots sooner than we were here. So that's, that's why it's there. But I, I can see it happening. Uh, I mean, I have a Rogers account for my uh, iPhone. I have a Rogers account for my SIM-enabled uh, 3G, 4G, whatever it is, um, iPad. So, you know, I can see them saying, hey, you know, buy another SIM card, get another account, and you can have some sort of extra connectivity while you're in your car. I, I don't, I can't see it right now. Maybe there's something coming down, and this kind of relates back to our talk about dashboard standards. Maybe this will be somehow integrated into things like navigation and weather and some of these other things that that are more car specific. Just so long as when I put the key in the ignition and turn it, it doesn't give me that Rogers sound. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Have you ever used Waze? Yeah, I love Waze. It's a great GPS app. In Ontario, you can't even so much as touch your, we'll talk about this later, but you can't touch your cell phone when you're driving. And that pretty much ruins the Waze experience for me, which I use all the time. I would like to see Waze in the dashboard, so maybe if there was a Rogers account that beamed the stuff right into the screen on my dashboard, it would be a little easier. The stunt that got Elvis Costello banned from Saturday Night Live. I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, there's no reason to do this song here. Radio, radio. This was fantastic. On December 1977, the Sex Pistols were scheduled to appear on Saturday Night Live that week. This was their one and only U.S. tour. However, they got held up with visa issues. So the producers of Saturday Night Live had to call an audible, and they drafted in Elvis Costello, who was still in his 
angry young songwriter phase. And this was a story that made the rounds on the Internet this week, uh, courtesy of uh, Mike Springer at OpenCulture.com. Mike joins us now. Mike, good to have you with us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So this was one of the defining moments in Elvis Costello's career. Yes, I guess it was. He was 23 years old. His album came out um, just that year, his debut called My Aim is True. And he was on his first tour of, of America. Costello stepped in. Yeah, he exhibited a lot of a punk attitude, I guess. Now, as I understand it, this is this actually created a rift between Costello and Lorne Michaels over at Saturday Night Live? Yeah, you know, he wasn't invited back for over a decade. And many years later, Costello, um, in the liner notes to uh, a reissue of this year's model, his second album, said that as soon as he switched songs... Uh, Michaels was standing behind the cameras making threatening and obscene gestures to him. And he says, when the number was over, we were chased out of the building and told that we would never work on American television again. Alan, that doesn't sound anything like Michaels, does it? No, no, it, it, it doesn't. <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is the beauty of live television. And this is the sort of thing that made Saturday Night Live such a must-watch thing back in those early days because you never knew what was going to happen. I thought that was... That was that was a fantastic move on, on, on Elvis's part. I actually saw Elvis on the subsequent tour, and he exhibited that angry young songwriter thing to um, some bikers who were throwing kids back away from the stage at this one particular show. And uh, he got two songs into his set, and he looked down at the biggest, greasiest, horriblest biker who was abusing these punk kids who were just wanting to pogo in front of the stage. And he looked down at them and said, you pig shits, leave my friends alone. <laughs> and, and at that moment, I became a lifelong Elvis Costello fan. As I understand it, though, uh, Mike, he, he wasn't doing this himself. He was actually copying Jimi Hendrix. Right. Um, in 1969, Hendrix um, had to appear on the Lulu show. I think it was called Happening with Lulu on the BBC. And when he and uh, the Jimi Hendrix experience arrived, he found out that um, they wanted him to sing with Lulu at the end of um, Hey Joe. And so they were just, um, you know, in, in shock. And they, they, well, I don't know how much planning. Hendrix just stopped the song midway through and essentially preempted that by playing um, Cream, Sunshine, uh, My Love, until the show ended. Well, I just stop playing this rubbish and uh, dedicate a song to the uh, Cream, regardless of what kind of group they might be in. We'd like to dedicate it to Eric Clapton, Ginger Baker, and uh, Jack Bruce. And, and the producer of that show was really furious. Um, so he was banned from the BBC. While Costello was banned from Saturday Night Live, that ban ended up getting lifted. Yeah. A little less than 12 years later, he came back on. And then in 1999, he returned again and actually uh, performed a kind of uh, parody of it. And now some young men, we yes. give an A for musicianship. Yeah. And probably a C for attitude. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies, Ladies and, and gentlemen, gentlemen Beastie Boys. Boys. Oh, 
I'm sorry, ladies and gentlemen, but there's just really no reason to do this song here tonight. One, two, three, four. It was a, a funny moment. And Lauren Michaels was a lot less uptight. <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, I guess he, he replayed the scene countless times and released it on albums and things. So Michaels made a lot of money and uh, everything out of the uh, the stunt. One last thing to point out about that Elvis Costello performance was the, the drummer is wearing a sign, uh, a T-shirt that says, Thanks, Melk, <laughs> as in thanks, Malcolm McLaren, for <laughs> screwing everything up so we could be here on Saturday Night Live and not your band. Mike, great speaking with you. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. I have an update for you from Alyssa Clarkson of Kitchener, Ontario, who was last week's co-producer who pointed out she has synesthesia. Right. This is where your senses sort of overlap so you can, that numbers have colors or notes have colors or something like that. Right. Some people see sounds and uh, other people when they read, uh, it's the letters or the numbers are in color. And Alyssa had pointed out that uh, she is of that latter category. As she reads, everything she's reading, each individual letter has a color. And we urged her to call in and uh, tell us what this means and what this is all about. Now, she didn't call in. She wrote in because she wanted to show us how letters and numbers look to her. And that's more effective than actually picking up the phone. Oh, okay. Now, the problem is, is that this is a podcast. So we actually have to have some sort of audio for it. So I thought I could do a few things. I could call her up and I could ask her specifically to uh, read her email or just explain it to us. I could read it. Or I thought, wouldn't it be neat to see what the state of the art in speech synthesis is at today and run it through one of these speech synthesizers? Okay. You want to hear what she had to say? Okay. Every letter and every number has a color. They don't change. It doesn't have a lot of use or specialness to it. Except that certain numbers are more pleasing to the eye than others. For example, 367 is a rather ugly combination of blue, orange, and brown. I would be less likely to pick it for a locker number at the gym than the more eye-pleasing 324. It's very easy for me to remember telephone numbers because I can remember their colors too. It also had a net result of making me very horrible at mathematics in high school. That is until algebra turned math into letters. In arithmetic, numbers add together. That makes a new number that might not have the colors of the original numbers. But in algebra, the letters mostly just compound together. For example, x times y equals xy. Same colors. 2 times 4 equals 8 makes a completely different color. But mostly, the colors just add an extra layer of noise to everything. What do you think? Well, um, she sounds rather sexy for... A synthesis. You naughty boy. <laughs> cool. I never thought about that. If if numbers have colors, then there would be pleasing combinations and disagreeable combinations, and that would really mess with your math. Yeah, okay. Fascinating stuff. And she did point out as well um, that uh, she hasn't had any formal testing for this, uh, but... As an adult, I've interviewed several other folks. I've found that their experiences do not match mine. 
and that my condition matches with the textbook definition of a synesthetic. I have different theories about how it's helped or hindered me in life. For example, I think my spelling is as good as it is because I have an extra set of information in color, in addition to letter patterns and shapes. It helps me remember how words are formed. I think that's a superhero power. It's very close. I would like her to choose me some 649 numbers. Oh, that's an interesting thought. They have to be pleasing numbers to her. Right. I wonder, though, if... You know what? As a matter of fact, I've got her contact info. How about this? How about um, instead of calling her up and interviewing her, we, uh, we interview her through Siri, and then I will play back what she writes back uh, in the speech synthesis app. Okay, fine. Works for me. All right. Let's see what we can do here. Hi, Alyssa. Listen, we have an idea. Can you pick us a combination of numbers for 649 that you think is pleasant to look at? And what we'll do is we'll take your $25 donation. We'll invest it in 649 and, or at least, a, you know, a little bit of it in, in the 649 numbers that you pick. And then if we win something, we'll split it with you. Brilliant. Listen, while we're waiting for an answer, uh, ask Siri this question. Okay. What is today going to be like? And you have to use those words. What is today going to be like? Okay, check it out. I just got Rick rolled. Yes, you did. I got the Wikipedia entry for never going to give you up. I don't know why. Can anybody hypothesize as to what the connection is between what is today going to be like and Rick Astley? Where did this come from? I found it over the weekend. <laughs> you just randomly asking Siri questions? No, no, no. It was it was on uh, it was on one of the Apple web blogs. That's hilarious. Yeah. Meantime, we've got an update on the Win a Supertooth Disco Soundbar. So we asked people to give us their best concert experiences. We have three stories. Do you want to go through them? We should actually play them one by one just to give people an idea of what it sounds like when they actually phone into the show. All right. So uh, first of all, uh, Andrew uh, had uh, called in. Now, Andrew worked with you at CFNY back in, I think, the early 90s. Yes. So he's concerned he might be disqualified from the contest as a result. Mm, don't think so. I don't work there anymore. He doesn't work there anymore. We have no connection there whatsoever, so no. All right, well, let's hear his story. Alan had talked about his worst, most awkward interview of all time with the Beautiful South in the 90s. Um, my best concert uh, story comes from that time when the Beautiful South came to Canada for the first time uh, for the release of their album, Welcome to the Beautiful South. Anyway, uh, some of your viewers or listeners might uh, remember the original uh, Temple, uh, Masonic Temple uh, concert space, which was probably one of the best places in the city to watch a concert. Across the street was a great place, a pub called the Morrissey Tavern, which I believe is a condo now. So my assignment that night was to go and banner the concert uh, venue. Uh, I kind of just went out and hung out backstage uh, with everyone and with the band. And so uh, at the time, a reporter from the NME was there and was following the Beautiful South on their North American tour, and then he was going to report about it. So in the meantime, while things are going on, the guys in the band who were typical Brits, I guess, if you will, uh, wanted some pints. And so they asked people where they should go, and I suggested the Morrissey Taverns across the street. No one's really going to know who they are, so they all ended. So anyway, all the members of the band, myself, the NME guy and a couple other people from the record company ended up going over to Morrissey and were 
drinking beers and pints at the at the pub. And they were there for about three hours. Eventually, they got them back because they had to go on stage for about 11 o'clock. Got back. I think at that point, most of them were pretty pie-eyed. Anyway, about three months later, my phone rings, and I pick myself up, and it's Scott Turner from KFNY. And he goes, uh, Andrew, you're never going to guess. You're on the front cover of the NME here in Britain, standing beside or behind the guys from Beautiful South as they're sitting at the pub at the bar at the Morrissey Tavern drinking pints, and we're all standing there. And he said, so your face is plastered all over Britain here on this magazine. Call in. That was one of the highlights of, uh, of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of concerts. That's pretty good. But then there's Craig. Uh, he's from Toronto. And he got to, well, listen to what happened to him. June 6, 1993, uh, I went to see Paul McCartney at uh, the Exhibition Stadium. That cousin who worked for Paul uh, doing security and toured with him. So I got uh, backstage, got to meet Mr. McCartney himself, had dinner with the band, which at that time had uh, Robbie McIntosh, Hamish Stewart, Blair Cunningham, so a bunch of great musicians. But the highlight moment was uh, I was up on stage before the sound check, getting a tour around, and Paul himself came up on stage, the band was about to sound check, and Paul uh, stopped me and said, oh, your cousin says you play guitar. And I said, yeah, actually, I play bass, left-handed like you. He said, oh, here, try this one. And he put a bass on me. Um, and it was only at looking down at it that I realized it was his Hofner violin bass that he played on Ed Sullivan with the Beatles. And at the time, what, 93? Uh, it still had the set list from the Beatles Candlestick Park show uh, taped to it. So there's like this old yellowed piece of paper with scotch tape kind of holding it in place. Was you know a day tripper, paperback writer, and you know pretty much the Candlestick Park set list. So that uh, I think I managed to play about one note on it before I said, "Oh, we have to take this back," because that was a little bit uh, too iconic of something for me to drop. I, you know what, I have. We got to listen to one more here because there are three key contenders this week. Uh, but uh, that that's the one that's doing it for me. Gary from Toronto. I went to see. Uh... Ned's Atomic Dustin at the uh, Ontario Place Forum about 20 years ago. Um, opening band was Radiohead um, on their first tour, but Ned's playing the Forum was pretty neat. Uh, the center stage would sit and rotate, and so it was on a little center platform, and the whole stage would rotate through the hour. And uh, it was circled around by these fences, obviously to protect the band from the audience, or audience from the band, I suppose. Uh, and the bouncers would sit behind the fence. So all through the show, people would jump up and leap over the fence to get onto the stage, and the bouncers would grab them and pitch them back into the audience. And this went on through the entire uh, show for uh, Ned's Atomic Dustin. In the center of the stage was uh, the drum riser. So the, the drum riser was up above the rest of the band, and he was on like a little mountain. And uh, he was up at the top of the mountain, he would spin, and it would be the pinnacle of this rotating stage set. Now, uh, for the last song, right at the very end of the show, uh, the lead singer said, this is it, you know, this is our last song, everybody go for it. The entire audience jumped up on their feet and started swarming down and piling over the fences. It looked like a scene from Lord of the Rings. Just scurrying over the fences, the bouncers were throwing them off, throwing them off, until finally they couldn't keep up, and everyone swarmed onto the stage. And then they all swarmed up and were taking over the band, and the band eventually couldn't play anymore and then, until it was only the drummer left at the top center. And he was hammering away just a drum beat with all these swarms of people in their Doc Martens climbing up 
until they climbed the top of the, the drum kit, grabbed the drummer, and took him away like a champion. Or a loser, I suppose. But that was definitely one of my best concert stories ever. Do you remember the Ontario Place Forum spun in, around in a circle there? Yeah, that goofy little theater. I kind of miss it. That was great. Doesn't everybody miss it? Yeah, the, the Molson Amphitheater is not quite the same. No. What would you think of that one? Well, that's good, too. But Paul McCartney's bass... That, that, isn't that remarkable? Oh, wow. I got to go with that one. You know what? I'm with you on that, too. Craig, we're moving you on to the next round in this. If you have a concert experience that you think tops Craig, and maybe it doesn't, we're going to advance one person for two remaining episodes, and then we are going to let you vote on the winner of this fantastic uh, Supertooth disco uh, from uh, the folks over at Supertooth and Max Borges Agency. This thing pumps out a ton of power. Yeah, I, you know, I once again found myself in need of a Bluetooth speaker when I was in San Francisco and I wanted to listen to some tunes and I didn't want to have headphones in my ears. This volume level, if you crank it to three to four hours straight, you get a uh, full battery charge. It does uh, 12 watts uh, on the subwoofer and two times eight watts uh, on the left and right channels as well. And it's about, you asked last week how long it is. It's 315 millimeters long. See, it's tiny. It, it's, it's the kind of thing that you can take around with you. Yeah. Which is fantastic. And it, and it only weighs uh, about uh, 1,000 grams. We got a uh, response back uh, from Alyssa here. Oh, okay. She wants to know how many numbers are in a 649 ticket. Um, six. Okay. Say, I, I wouldn't know either. Six between one and 49. So we'll uh, we'll get the, the updated numbers from her in a minute. Okay. Okay. So, um, Craig, you're moving on. 323-319-NERD. Uh, if you'd like to join in uh, on this, everybody's got a great concert story that they tell, and it probably gets better the more you drink. <laughs> probably. <laughs> you uh, posted this on alancross.ca with a headline, why aren't we at this? This uh, podcast festival in, in Los Angeles? Yeah. I had never heard of it until um, I got it through one of my newsletters. We should go. I mean, we would, you know. First of all, they should be paying us to be there. Second, we should really think about uh, maybe going next year if it's still around. That's probably a good idea. Meantime, the organization that's responsible for the behind-the-scenes uh, statistics that we uh, have here on the big show uh, points out that the ninth Annual People's Choice Podcast Award nominations open at midnight Eastern Standard Time, October 1st. And the nomination period is only two weeks so we are encouraged to encourage you to nominate us. I'd like that. Thank you very much. That would be terrific. Yes, this is the podcast awards that you're talking about here. Uh, the uh, People's Choice, there's the best video podcast, the best produced podcast. Yes. Hint, hint. Uh, there's business, comedy, cultural, education, entertainment, food and drink, gaming, general, uh, GLBT. Uh, what? Uh, gay, lesbian, uh, bisexual, and transgender. Oh, sure. We could qualify for that. Um, uh, health, fitness, mature, movies, films, pod, safe music. I don't quite know what that means. No, that means that means playing music that's not uh, encumbered by any licensing or copyright issues. Oh, that sounds exciting. Uh, technology, science, sports, and travel. So uh, podcastawards.com. If you go as of uh, the first, which is now, uh, they've opened them up uh, a couple of days ago, go to podcastawards.com. Nominate us, please. Yes, that would be very nice. Time now for Ask Alan Anything. Hi, this is Ken, and I live in Courtney, British Columbia. 
I have an, um, a question for Alan about Holly Woods of the band Toronto. Uh, just where she came from and how that the whole gig with, uh, with the band Toronto came about, how the band got together, and what happened later on. She was married to a friend of mine at one point. Uh, that was Brian Allen, who was also in, in, in Toronto. Uh, they, they divorced, and she is doing her own thing now. All I know is that she continues to tour on an occasional basis, and she's working with uh, Barry Connors, who I think used to be in Toronto as well, and they're doing some shows. They did some shows in, in uh, Ontario a couple of years ago, and they may end up doing a few more going forward. But that's that's about it. If you want to um, find out what she's all up, uh, what she's up to, just look at HollywoodsandToronto.com. Band members hooking up—that's the kiss of death for a group, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's it's probably a very bad idea. It ha- you know there are uh, success stories. I can think of uh, Pat Benatar and Neil Giraldo, Martha and the Muffins. Which muffin did she marry? Uh, Mark Gain. I, they live in the neighborhood, I think. We see oh. them all the time. Yeah, yeah, they do. I'm trying to think. Of, uh, okay, there was Darcy Retsky and James Eha from Smashing Pumpkins. That did not work out. Fleetwood Mac. Oh, that resulted in a great record, but uh, no, that was a disaster. There was uh, the couple in, in Sonic Youth that has uh, recently ended in divorce, which wasn't good. Yeah, it's a bad idea. Oh, we got an update from Melissa here. You, you ready for your 649 ticket? Okay. Here we go. Go. Two. Mm-hmm. 18, mm-hmm. 24, mm-hmm. 28, mm-hmm. 33, and 42. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Okay. All right, and then I'll pick a bonus number. All right. As I will buy this. This will be for the uh, Saturday, uh, October 5th draw. So I will report back on our winnings. How much am I investing? Well, how much is a ticket? Well, a, a ticket's, a, what, two bucks or three bucks? I, I have no idea. It's been a while. My wife is in charge of buying lottery tickets. Why don't you buy one ticket? Well, that's it. I mean, we've got one set of numbers, so we can only buy one ticket. Okay. And if we buy multiple tickets with the same numbers, well, we just end up splitting the money with ourselves. So it doesn't make any sense. So we need to find out what the uh, colors are. Yes. So what do those colors look like to you, question mark? White, yellow, white, dark blue, yellow, red, yellow, dark blue, light blue, light blue, red, yellow, which looking at it now, correspond to my favorite colors and color combinations. I suppose if you're gambling on random chance anyways, it isn't a bad way to do it. Cheers. All right. Uh, You found a brand new use for all those Justin Bieber CDs. Well, it's actually any CDs. there's a, a company in Taiwan that has figured out what you can use old uh, compact discs for, and it has to do with, with growing these little tiny nano rods of zinc oxide. Uh, oxide. And zinc oxide is a photocatalyst. You shine light on it, and it's good at breaking down organic matter. What they've done is they've taken these discs, put these nano rods of zinc oxide on them, exposed them to light, and they've found that. What ends up happening is it is very effective at breaking down sewage. <laughs> Any particular CD work better than another? Because I'm still coming back to Justin Bieber. I wonder if Limp Biscuit CDs would do anything or would that would just be redundant. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you.
To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook and get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.